two really life-changing events happening so close in time in my life made me realize that when I, I got home uh, from Afghanistan, that I needed to take a very active role in ensuring that North Carolina, that America, uh, that the planet was, was a place where uh, I, I could feel good about raising my daughter. And I uh, believe that elective office, and still believe that elective office was one of the best, if not the best ways to do that. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations, and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice, and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This episode features our very first guest from the US, Representative Greer Martin. Greer is a veteran of Afghanistan serving in the US Airborne, a calling that came after 9-11. It was this formative experience that inspired Greer into politics, where he serves in the North Carolina State Legislature. In this episode, Greer also records leaving behind his family to go to war and how his daughter is his driver for a better world. It's time for you to meet our guest. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Greer Martin um, from the US, our first international veteran in politics. How are you, sir? Great to see you again. How are you today? Johnny, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Doing great here. Well, it's an absolute delight. And um, I've always dreamt of actually speaking to someone, one of our allies, and it just seemed a natural starting point um, with our good friends in the US. Um, but as I've already mentioned, Greer, you are um, you have a military background. Naturally, that's what binds us together, not just as allies, but in terms of our own service. And we've we've chatted about that in a previous call. But can you just tell us a little bit about your military service? Sure. Um I did, uh, when I was at university, uh, uh, participated in the Reserve Officers Training Corps, ROTC, which I think is similar to the OTC that uh, you have in the UK, and was commissioned into the reserve component as a field artillery officer, um, and spent my first few years uh, in the reserves as an artillery officer, as a fire support team leader, and was probably not the world's worst artilleryman, but was uh, certainly one of the worst uh, out there, but struggled long for a few years, uh, uh, firing misguided rounds uh, downrange. This was back in uh, 91, 92, uh, just after Desert Storm. And after a few years of doing that, I, uh, my commitment was coming to an end, but uh, decided that I did want to continue serving, but uh, in the interim had gone off to get my law degree also and thought, uh, that I might be uh, uh, less uh, useless as uh, a judge advocate, as a military lawyer, than I had been as, a, as an artilleryman. Um, so switched branches from field artillery to the judge advocate, judge advocate general's corps. Uh, that would have been about 1999 or thereabouts. And uh, uh, of course, in just a few years, uh, September 11th, the, the attacks 
occurred. And like I think a lot of folks um, in the reserve component immediately volunteered for, for active duty. Um, the uh, American military being the huge bureaucracy that it is, it took a, a few months for Uncle Sam to take me up on my offer, but uh, mobilized active duty and went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which uh, is uh, the home of the Airborne and Special Operations Forces. Uh, so the, the highest speed, uh, most exciting post in in the American military, I think, but conveniently for me, just happened to be an hour and a half down the road from from where I live in North Carolina. So I was able to come home on, on the weekends and, and see my wife. Um, after being there for a few months, um, found out that my wife was pregnant with her first child. And then soon after that, found out that I was uh, gonna be deployed to Afghanistan. So my, uh, my daughter was born in November, six days after that, uh, shipped out for Afghanistan with uh, 18th Airborne Corps, which is the, the main unit at Fort Bragg, the parent unit for the 82nd Airborne Division, 101st Airborne, 3rd Infantry Division, and the, the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, and went over to Afghanistan to Bagram for part of uh, OEF-3, the third rotation of the Enduring Freedom rotations that the U.S. Uh, was doing. So that would have been, I think, November uh, of 02. So it was in that lull uh, after the initial uh, hostilities had, had settled down that the uh, Taliban had been mostly pushed back, and it was before uh, their subsequent resurgence. So I, I don't think there's ever been a, a peaceful time to be in Afghanistan by any means, but certainly this was um, a, a less less dangerous uh, time to be there, and was there until uh, mid-2003. Uh, while I was over there, did a variety of things. My main job was to do what we would call foreign claims, so that, that when the uh, 82nd Airborne Division paratroopers were out there uh, breaking things. My job was sort of to follow in their wake to whatever remote village they'd been in uh, and uh, investigate any claims that the Afghans had made for reimbursement to the damage that our my fellow paratroopers had had done, uh, adjudicate the claim, and uh, if necessary, pay, pay the money for it. So uh, I had this very romantic image of what my job was that I was, uh, if you envision in some cheesy Clint Eastwood Western movie, where he plays um, sort of a roving circuit court judge traveling on horseback uh, through dangerous parts of the Wild West to dispense justice with a with a rifle and and a, a, a box of cash. That's what I was doing in Afghanistan. Um, so when I've explained that romantic vision to most folks, they said, "Oh yeah, you're you were uh, an insurance claims adjuster." Uh, not quite as romantic as Clint Eastwood going through the Wild West, but probably much closer to the truth of what actually was doing. Then beyond that, also was able on the side to help soldiers with their a variety of legal issues, and then also advise commanders on operational law. You know, essentially the law, what the law says about uh, who you can blow up and what weapons you can use uh, to blow them up with. Uh, came home and then have uh, spent the rest of the time in the reserve component, other than a few mobilizations for active duty. Spent most of my time since then at Fort Bragg still um, as a judge advocate with uh, Army Special Operations Command and Army Special Forces Command. And I'm now at the very, very tail end of my career. As we speak, I am uh, probably about 10 months out from being retired, uh, essentially due to, to old age. Oh, well, as they say here in the UK, you must have had an easy paper round because you look good on it. That's all I can say. <laughs> and um, you're, you're, it's really weird because I also ran claims clinics in Afghanistan 
It, no kidding. Yeah. So um, I know what it was like to go around with bags of cash and, well, and in, on the serious side, obviously those kind of battle damage incidents. And then right. on the slightly more humorous sides, when um, Afghans would come in with evidence of the claims they <laughs> wish to make against the, the um, ISAF forces. And right. uh, <laughs> right. you're, you're giggling because you probably came across these stories as well. But um, I, I think the best one for me was a story by British troops telling me about this dog uh, who'd attacked them in this village, very, very ferocious dog. And um, then it resulted in uh, an incident involved where sadly the dog um, is no longer with us. And uh, the owner came in ferocious about this incident and wanted to claim quite rightly against his loss and showed me a picture of the dog. And it can only be described as the size of a chihuahua. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't the Afghans exaggerating on that occasion. It was very much the British troops um, telling me about how ferocious <laughs> and dangerous this dog was. But I'm sure it was frightening for the troops at the time. But um, but then, so tailing, you know, running parallel with that, a bit like me, actually, has been this political career. Um, and you are within the state legislature. Um, can you educate us over here in the UK a little bit more about that form of government, its function, and how that relates to the politics in the US that we'll be more familiar with? Sure. And so um, we'll have to rewind a little bit all the way back to 1776. I'll, I'll start there and uh, should only take me a few hours to work my way up. To, I can't uh, believe we're getting lectured, lectured by history by the by a US. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you know, in America, we have a strong uh, federal system where our states have a great deal of uh, power with regard to the, the federal government. And, and throughout our history, it's there's been a, a very healthy tension between the federal government and the state governments as to as to uh, who has responsibility for a particular area. And, and that's been healthy for our system. Um, it is not really, though, uh, all that different from the system that seems to be evolving, or rather, uh, I guess, devolving would be uh, the appropriate verb in, in the uh, United Kingdom, uh, where you know, Scotland has a great deal of autonomy within the broader United Kingdom, Northern Ireland and Wales uh, also. And so really the closest analog to my job probably is as a, um, a member of the, the Scottish Parliament, um, and that we're a, a subnational assembly that has a great deal of control over every aspect of what goes on in our state, really with the exception of uh, foreign policy and, and defense. Um, there, uh, in the states, it tends to be a little more, uh, there are so many areas that the, both the federal government and state governments have a significant role. Transportation, for example, North Carolina has a large state road network, but we also have federal interstate highways that run through. Um, the same is true um, in criminal law, agriculture, education, so many other things. Um, so there's often less of a clear division between what's a state responsibility versus what's federal, as opposed to how much influence each uh, respective level has. But yeah, the, the easiest way to explain it is I'm essentially a, a member of the Scottish Parliament, the equivalent of that. And in fact, North Carolina is roughly well, I guess if you combined Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, North Carolina is about the same in population as all those combined and about the same in geography as, as those uh, combined uh, also. Uh, so that, that's about what I do and, and saves me having to explain the, uh, the full history of federalism in the United States from, from the creation of the Constitution in 1789. <laughs> 
Uh, that's a, that's a good. You would put, put your listeners to sleep mighty fast. <laughs> well, no, we we have touched on devolved government in previous episodes and previous seasons, so it's a really good an an I can't even say the word. Here we go. Analogy. There we go for us to actually look at and compare and contrast. But I think you're completely right in how you describe that, and and that um, link to Scotland is a good one. But um, I mean, but why did you get involved in politics in the first place? It's a question I ask absolutely everyone because I'm completely fascinated by people put their head above the parapet. Um, I mean, what what have you set out to achieve? Have you achieved that yet? Uh, and what what do you hope to achieve for the future? Yeah. Uh... Gosh, a lot of questions there that immediately uh, answer about how I, why did I get into politics? And I think I'd always been exposed to politics. My father had been engaged in politics, but was, I was quite certain that I never wanted to run for office myself. Um, but at, as I mentioned, uh, my daughter, my only child, was born uh, six days before I left for Afghanistan. And so I, I went from having very few real responsibilities uh, on this planet to all of a sudden being responsible uh, for uh, ensuring that I raised my child uh, in a state and a nation, in, in, in a world where she could be safe, where she could uh, be educated, and where she could prosper. And then just a you know week later, landing in Afghanistan, uh, a country where uh, certainly the Afghans, a father in Afghanistan, uh, can't say that he's providing that sort of environment for uh, his son or daughter. And so those two really life-changing events happening so close in time in my life made me realize that when I I got home uh, from Afghanistan, that I needed to take a very active role in ensuring that North Carolina, that America, uh, that the planet was was a place where uh, I, I could feel good about raising my daughter. And I uh, believe that elective office and still believe that elective office was one of the best, if not the best ways to do that. So a very um, sort of uh, abstract uh, duty, uh, high-minded sentiment there. And But once I'd made that decision, uh, then I went through the very uh, cold-blooded, data-driven process of figuring out where I could get myself elected. And uh, the state legislature seemed to be a place, I, I found an opportunity there, a seat that was not an open seat, but one that I thought I could win. Um, and I felt that the state legislature, because of the system we have in the United States, where the states have significant influence, was a great place to really make a big difference. You asked me what my goals were, what I hope to achieve uh, in, uh, in office, and I can't say that I had uh, specific policy aims. I didn't show, I, and that was by design. I didn't have a specific set of, uh, a specific agenda that I wanted to achieve. Instead, it was more broad, broadly focused on uh, education. Uh, again, all, all wrapped around my daughter. Could we get a good education in, in North Carolina? Would she have clean air to breathe and safe water to drink? Uh, would she be able uh, to get a, a, a good paying job uh, to support her family going forward? Um, those are the sort of things. And um, I can say that, uh, you know, North Carolina is is a great place to, to raise a child now. I've had a, a role in that um, uh, as part of a, a great team. We've got a long way to go. We face a lot of challenges, 
So the work will, the work will never be done. My, my goals will never be, I think, fully achieved. Wow. And you've been doing this for <laughs> much like arguably <laughs> the, uh, the two decade mission in Afghanistan, but hopefully with uh, a more uh, optimistic uh, outlook. It, it sounds to me that you, having that drive to serve, which is obviously evident within your military service, and you, you see that with your colleagues um, as well, as I'm told, there are, there are a lot of veterans serving alongside you. Am I right? Yeah, we do have a pretty good amount. North Carolina, because of the presence of Fort Bragg, which is the uh, the largest in terms of uh, personnel uh, installation in the United States, and certainly the the main installation in the United States Army, and then Camp Lejeune, which is one of the largest installations in our in our Marine Corps, and an Air Force base and a few other installations, has a, a strong veterans population. Um, so. Uh, that translates into a, a pretty good percentage of veterans in office. We still need it. It needs to be uh, higher, but um, I've been pleased to serve with a lot of veterans uh, from both political parties. Um, and of course in the States, we for the most part have just, just two political parties, My, uh, libertarian friends and uh, folks in our other small parties would disagree, but we're essentially a two party system in contrast uh, to what you have in the, in the UK. Um, and I've found that uh, our shared military background really serves as a unifying force uh, in the face of some pretty significant policy uh, disputes. So some of the best friends I've made in the General Assembly are, I, I'm a Democrat, uh, some of my best friends are Republicans who are also veterans. We, we show up and we, you know, we'll fight over our policy differences, but uh, someone who stepped up to serve our country, uh, the, my default view of them is that they're here in the General Assembly for the same reasons they served in the military, uh, to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to serve others, that they're not here uh, for glory or fame or anything else of the, of the sort. Not that those things are to be found in abundance in the North Carolina General Assembly, but uh, they're at least in small doses. Um, and we're able, we understand each other, we trust each other, and that allows us to, uh, to work together uh, in ways that are much more difficult, I think, for uh, uh, members of the General Assembly who have not served in the military. That's so fascinating to hear that experience from you, because that's certainly been what I've seen here in the UK. In the UK Parliament, for example, this was something I explored with Tom Tugendhat. Um, and his debate over the Overseas Operations Bill, which has been a big piece of legislature going through um, UK Parliament, and his interaction with Dan Jarvis on the opposite side of the chamber, and the fact that they'd actually served together in Afghanistan, been out on the ground wow. together, wow. and there's a, 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 a quite dubious picture of them out in the desert with some dodgy haircuts. But, <laughs> but the, the commonality and that bond of service, they they disagree ferociously around sort of you know, ideological things, but the way in which they converse and work together and respect each other based on that shared service is really quite powerful. And I've been really fascinated to see what your experience has been over in the U S too. Um, and it's really refreshing to hear that from you, that that certainly seems to be the case too. But um, there are some similarities it would seem between the UK and the U S about the, across the whole veteran space. Um, but do you think there are differences too, or what are the, what are those similarities and what are those differences as you see them from over in the U S would you say around the veterans community? Yeah. It's, um, this is a, 
an issue that I think that has seen a lot of evolution uh, post 9-11, as both of our countries have been heavily engaged in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've, I, again, I, I don't think I don't think I need to go back to 1776 for this, but at least going back to probably uh, probably post World War One in the states, um, our nation did, and particularly post World War Two, invested heavily in our veterans, uh, in their health care, uh, in their education, in uh, helping them uh, purchase a home, a whole series of uh, programs to benefit them, to care for them. And um, my sense is that uh, the UK uh, in, at the governmental level did not reach those, those heights. Mm. Uh, and a lot of my education on this comes from my uh, engagement with uh, Jim Cameron at, at Mission Motorsport. Ah, good old Jim. Uh, and I think that the sense I got from the time I've spent in the UK interacting with veterans over there is that immediately post 9-11, uh, the government was probably not as engaged, certainly as many UK veterans hoped they would be, and, and in comparison to the United States, was not as engaged in helping veterans. But one of the things, uh, not, not as engaged as the United States Veterans Administration has been, but one of the things that, that blew me away uh, in the UK was how ph private philanthropy stepped up with yeah. Help for Heroes and a whole host of other uh, nonprofit organizations we're doing things at a level unseen in the United States to go visit uh, Tedworth House, um, you know, an old stately home and officer's mess that had been converted into a recovery center and just a, a lovely part of your country in uh, just a, a beautiful environment um, with incredible facilities for rehabilitation, for exercise, a caring staff, fully resourced, mostly through uh, philanthropy. And there's nothing going on at that level in the States. As I observe from across the Atlantic, it does seem that the UK government is stepping up its uh, care for veterans. Certainly, uh, the creation of the uh, minister's position uh, that Johnny Mercer filled does seem to have raised the veterans' portfolio to a higher level. Um, so... Uh, and, and I do think certainly uh, philanthropy has stepped up in the United States, too. So ideally, we're, we're both at a place in our countries where the government and the private sector are doing what they need to do. My concern, of course, is that if hostilities have wound down in Iraq and Afghanistan, that the groundswell support that we've seen in both countries uh, diminishes. Um, you know, the public's there, there are plenty of other problems that both of our countries are facing beyond just uh, wars and taking care of our veterans and the public's attention is going to be diverted by those things. And without, uh, fortunately, without more veterans being injured physically and mentally or just uh, reintegrating into civilian society, that um, we're going to have a, a, a hard time keeping government and the private sector focused on, on what they need to be doing for our veterans. And I, and I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, but I know at least part of that answer does involve veterans stepping up to serve in government. It won't happen without without that happening. You're not going to hear me uh, disagree with you on that point. <laughs> um, but absolutely. I thought I'd get an amen on that one. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Having more veterans in positions of leadership in our communities from local government, 
right up to national government is really important to make sure that we do keep this in the consciousness of those decision makers. I also think that the recent times that we've lived in during COVID-19 here in the UK, we've actually seen the armed forces visible in our communities again for so many years because of the Homeland security threat from Irish Republicanism and because of the increased Islamic um, domestic terrorism threat and other domestic threats as well, the armed forces were increasingly um, invisible in our communities, but all of a sudden the armed forces has been seen doing COVID-19 tests in car parks of supermarkets, going to door to door to support local authorities, battling COVID on a local level. And I think the public here in the UK have, have understood the personalities behind the armed forces and their relationships improved. But I completely agree in that narrative, as you've explained, that understanding was there. It was clear during Afghan Iraq. We understood the armed forces. They got us. And there is this danger that what we call the help for heroes effect dwindles away as, as it yeah. becomes less and less vi- visible in the media. So I actually think there's probably... Um, it seems that to me that we've got some things right here in the UK and we, we forever look across the pond and think that you are the shining light of veterans uh, affairs. And indeed that's true in many cases, but I think somewhere in the middle uh, in, of the Atlantic there is, is a, is a solution about how we broach this going forward. Um, so it's really, yeah, really- absolutely. Our countries are so similar and obviously have a, a common history Um that uh, if we're not learning from each other on how to care for our veterans, we're we're falling down on the job. Definitely, I think that's probably one of the first tests. In fact, and um, but that's how we can come together. But there are obviously lots of things that divide us at the moment within our politics. But we've seen that played out in public here in the UK. We've seen it famously in the US too. Um, I mean, is that an, is that a fair commentary that politics is divided in the US and? And how's that having an impact on democracy and political participation more widely in the U.S., would you say? Yeah, we're as divided as as I've ever seen, not just in my 15-year political career, but in my 52 years uh, of life. Um, Now, I I was uh, not quite born, I guess, uh, in most of 1968 when there was a lot of turmoil in the United States. But certainly uh, since then, this is far and away the most divided we've ever been. Um, I think that's been going on, that's existed for a while under the surface, and then certainly through the the Trump presidency, but then particularly with the events of January 6th, with the insurrection in our capital, that made it uh, very clear, uh, the deep divisions in in American society. Um, Obviously, looking at at the UK, where you've got... um, you know, Scotland potentially again looking to uh, uh, become independent, um, and, and other divisions. You've, uh, at least as I look at it, you know, the most prominent divisions are are geographic. Recognizing that geography is sometimes a proxy for uh, other other divides. Uh, in the United States, it's it's not as geographic, and it, it, it's more ide- purely ideological, uh, and that there are two very different viewpoints on what America's future should look like, what America's identity is. And and I'm not sure how we resolve that at all. But again, one path towards that is a sense, a common sense of shared experiences that you get in the military. There's other uh, endeavors in society 
to gain that uh, shared set of experiences. But for me, the military has far and away been uh, the place to get that where you're work. I'm working together as a North Carolinian with, you know, someone whose accent I can barely understand a Yankee from, from New York. Uh, and we're both tasked to go through an obstacle course together or accomplish some other mission. Uh, you know, someone whose last name I can barely pronounce, whose parents immigrated from a country I've never heard of and who's never been exposed to someone like me with a Southern accent who can barely understand me, you know, uh, me as a Democrat, uh, having to, solve a problem with a very, very conservative Republican. Um, that's the sort of thing uh, that will be a part of whatever uh, the solution looks like for my country and, and probably for yours also. What um, is my assessment right uh, on attributing geography uh, to the source of the most obvious divisions in the UK? Um, I think it is certainly a base of some divisions in in the UK particularly when we talk about the intra nationalist debate um that's being that's I'm, I've been reliably informed has never gone away it's always been there subsurface and <laughs> comes to prominence at different times depending on who's got the loudest voice at the moment we happen to have a very loud voice on on certain elements of that uh, devolved government de- debate at the moment um but i think actually we're seeing really interesting things happen in UK politics at the moment where traditional areas of support that might have been attributed to Labour or the Conservatives in the past are defying the odds. So we've seen the Red Wall, famously in the north of England, where ordinarily the Labour Party would have just walked it. We're now seeing these by-elections happening where the Conservatives are gaining seats. Likewise, we're seeing down in the south of England where, again, the Conservatives would have ordinarily put up a candidate and not worried about campaigning because it was a shoe-in. Um, we're, we're seeing them lose seats or or huge amounts of vote share as well in, in local elections. So it's really interesting. It's all kind of up for grabs at the moment, but it, there is this kind of divisiveness. It's certainly polarised. And it's funny you should reference point the 60s, because for me, as someone that is a political geek, I've really reached back to that moment to look for some answers and to be inspired by the likes of Bobby Kennedy and what he did at that time to bring people together at a, a boiling point of, of political history. Uh, do you think we have those figures in our politics globally or, or nationally? Uh, is, are we waiting for the next Bobby Kennedy? Do we, is that possible? Do you think? They're out there. Um, and certainly we need to look for them and support them where we can. I am, uh, cautious though about uh, looking for the solution to our problems in individuals, in personalities. Um, that uh, there is certainly uh, potential there uh, for positive change, but there's also potential for demagoguery, uh, for dictatorship, for cults of personality, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, true for uh, across the political spectrum. Uh, on that. So um, uh, we, we need to be looking for leaders of substance, of proven substance, uh, uh, and leaders who have the ability to bring us together. Um, but we can't um, expect just one great person uh, to do that for us. Uh, you know, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, President Barack Obama, 
Um, uh, I think one of the very best presidents we've had uh, in uh, uh, of the past century, um, and was uh, you know had the personality to be someone who could unify our country, but even he is not someone who could solve all our problems and we can't expect him to, we need to, you know, we need to, uh, again, to identify those folks and support them, but also equip them with a Congress, equip them with a, a parliament, um, with a bureaucracy made up of men and women with a shared ethic of service and shared competence, uh, to help get the job done. I was going to say, perhaps you've already answered our question to that problem. It's about the movement and that kind of cross-party movement that we have potentially through veteran participation cross-party. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about this, and I said, well, what we need to do, and it's a dirty word, but create an insurgency. We've spent so many decades countering insurgencies um, and some of the most nastiest, cruelest insurgencies that we've, uh, we've ever seen. But actually, insurgency potentially could be a positive thing. And that's not about setting up new political parties it's about looking at democracy looking at the establishment and seeing how we can actually get people in there uh, this insurgency of people with shared values shared purpose shared skills who can actually change things for the better from within and i think that's probably the best approach rather than kind of some fringe movement that never seems to be able to gain traction anyway yeah yeah we i mean goodness i mean we've both our countries have uh incredible democracies uh which you know, arise from the the same the same root um our, our american democracy is certainly a, an offshoot of of british democracy we, we've obviously made some pretty significant changes uh post 1776 <laughs> to it but you know it, it's what we've got has survived the test of time and uh, we we don't need revolution we don't need wholesale change but at the same time, uh, some pretty glaring flaws in both our systems are showing up. And we need to both look at the systemic changes that need to be made, uh, the procedural changes that need to be made, but then also um, the uh, what personnel changes uh, we need to make. So in getting some of those personnel changes, um, we need to speak to our veterans community and get them to stand up yeah. and serve again, as I say. So... On that, uh, before we close out today, um, I've really I've loved this chat and no doubt we're going to talk again and again in the future. But what would you say to to a UK or US veteran sat there listening to the, this podcast today, out on a run, walking the dog or just going about their daily life listening into this show? What would you say to them to inspire them to stand up and serve again? First of all, I'd say good for being out there on a run. It's important to keep your PT up. Keep your fizz up and uh, and stay in shape, uh, particularly for us folks in the in the reserve component too, uh, Johnny. Um, but with regard to politics, I would say don't be first of all don't be scared of politics, and don't be turned off by politics. Uh, one of the great things I think about the military mentality is no matter how much we're frustrated by military life, how much we may be upset or dislike our our fellow soldiers, if we're given a mission. We're going to drop all that and we're going to go out there and accomplish the freaking mission. It's going to get done. And uh, we know that the, the soldier next to us is going to have the same mentality. They're there to get the job done and we can trust in that. And that's very satisfying and we get used to that. Politics is not always that way. There are people in there 
advancing personal agendas. There's people in politics advancing selfish economic uh, agendas, uh, advancing their party's agenda over uh, the country's agenda. And that understandably turns many people off, particularly veterans who come from an environment where that's anathema. And I would say to veterans that uh, that's not something they should be repelled by. That's just something that they need to view as yet another, albeit more difficult challenge than many things that they've faced in the military. And that their demonstrated record of service to something greater than themselves is exactly what's needed in politics to uh, address that very problem that they're needed more than ever to step up and serve in this capacity. So get involved in politics for all the, the right reasons that you stepped up to serve your country. Um, at the same time though, one thing I do see many veterans do in the States, and it's probably something that you see too, is that they're inspired for the same reasons they enlisted in the military to step up and serve the country and run for office. But the thing they forget from military life, where in military life, you know, we joke in, that in the American military, you don't go to the latrine without drafting a five-paragraph operations order. I mean, you plan it, Same. Uh, whatever you're going to do. And yet when mil uh, veterans leave the military and they decide to run for office, they said, all right, I'm going to go do good in the world and then go down and pick an office to file for without doing the research on, uh, is this the, the right target? Uh, if it is, uh, can I successfully... Uh, attack this target um, and, and doing the same level of analysis and planning that they would do for a military operation. Bring, uh, bring that from the military over to politics. Find an office where you have a chance to win. Doesn't mean a 50-50 chance to win or a 90% chance to win. It, it may be only a 20% chance to win. Whatever it is, make sure you've got, uh, you've given the numbers a good look, sought the advice of those like you, Johnny, who uh, do this for a living, who, who can give a realistic uh, analysis on the odds of winning and get, help you uh, draft a good plan to do it uh, and then go about doing it. So keep your idealism, but be very uh, data-driven in picking the office you want to run for and in conducting your campaign for office. That's sound advice, comprehensive. Greer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again sometime. I look forward to it. Johnny, thanks for having me on. And thanks for all you're doing to uh, get our fellow veterans to step up and serve in office. Thank you, sir. Thank you. If you've been inspired by Greer's story today, then head over to campaignforce.co.uk where you can check out our many events from our introductory insight workshop, which is completely free of charge, to our many mission-specific training events. Book on today and use this as your moment to stand up and serve again. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.